Our scripture reading today is from Galatians chapter 3 from verse 6 to verse 9. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed alongside Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Pastor Greg texted me uh, yesterday before the uh, Saturday service and uh, wanted me to send his greetings to you and let you know that he is uh, recovering, he's getting his strength back. Um, they seem to have removed all of the cancer, which is exciting news. <clears throat> and he's just awaiting medical clearance in order to be back and hopes to be back with uh, us very soon. So, good news. A big part of our lives is figuring out where we belong in life. It starts with our families. But by elementary school and middle school on the playground, we're breaking into our own cliques trying to figure out, is this where I belong? We might choose a campus, a college campus, wondering, is this where I belong? We become sports fans, join motorcycle clubs, and find meetup groups online, wondering, is this where I belong? Whether it's Raiders Nation or Daughters of the American Revolution. Whether it's the young conservatives or the young progressives on a college campus or being part of Children of the Mayflower. Whether it's the Pasadena Motorcycle Club or CrossFit. We look to these groups to figure out, is this where I belong? And although some of these groups provide us with a sense of belonging and meaning, all of them leave us with a twinge of disappointment and emptiness. <clears throat> I thought about this this month when I read the cover story to Harvard Business Review. The cover story article was written by former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, who says that our culture is suffering from an epidemic of loneliness. Where indeed do we belong? And who do we belong to? Well, as Christians, we believe that the ultimate answer to that question is that we belong to God. And we belong to the people of God. We were made by God, crafted in the image of God, made in his image and likeness to reflect God's character and God's nature to all the rest of creation. And part of being made in the image of God is being made for each other, being made to live in community with other image bearers of God. But we have lost our way. 
We've lost our way collectively as a human race. We've lost our way individually, each of us in our own unique way. We've lost our way from the God who made us. And the Christian message at its essence is about finding our way back to God and into community with others who have found their way back to God. Today we're in week two of a five-week sermon series that is commemorating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation that happened in Europe. And last week, Pastor Chuck Hunt did a wonderful job of retelling the story of Martin Luther and the start of the Reformation that began in Germany on October 31st, 1517. The 16th century Reformation in Europe that began with Luther in Germany and spread to places like Switzerland and England was about the church rediscovering its message of how people find their way back to the God who made them. Over time, some of the leaders of the church had drifted from that message. And so God raised up leaders like Martin Luther and Catherine von Bora in Germany. John Calvin in Switzerland, William Tyndale, Thomas Cranmer in England, and others throughout Europe to help the church get back on track with its message. And churches like Lake Avenue Church share in that Reformation heritage that began 500 years ago in Europe. Now, there were different issues at stake in each region in Europe that participated and joined in this Reformation. Each region's participation was unique. The Lutherans in Germany were a little different from the Puritans and the Anglicans in England, who were different still from the Calvinists in Geneva. However, all of the Reformation groups shared a common core set of convictions that later would be summarized as the five solas. Sola is Latin for only or alone. And, and as Pastor Chuck mentioned last weekend, the five solas of the Reformation are Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, God's glory alone. And last weekend, we looked at Scripture alone, sola scriptura, the Latin. And we were reminded by Pastor Chuck that the Bible is our supreme and ultimate authority in all matters of faith and life. And although things like reason and experience and tradition are important factors in our lives, all of those things stand under the ultimate and final authority of the Scriptures of the Bible. That was a key component to the Reformation everywhere it took place. And so today we're going to build on that and talk about sola fide, faith alone. All of the Reformers agreed that faith was the way we find our way back to God. Let's start by defining a couple terms. We can't talk about faith alone without also talking about what it means to be justified. In fact, we encounter this word in our reading in Galatians today, the, the verb justify. And the, the word justify and justification are found a lot in the New Testament, especially the Apostle Paul's writings, especially his two letters to the church in Rome and the church in the ancient city of Galatia. These two books from the New Testament, Romans and Galatians, are foundational 
to the Reformation in Europe 500 years ago. Now, we often think the word justify means to make excuses for ourselves, that we try to justify ourselves, try to, try to make excuses. But that's not how these words are used in the New Testament. In the Bible, the word justify and justification simply mean being made right with God. That since we've lost our way from the God who created us, to be justified is to find our way back to God and be made right with God. And of course, that assumes that we're not right with God before we're justified, that we've lost our way. And the 16th century reformers appealed to the Bible, to Scripture alone, to demonstrate that this justification, being made right with God, comes to us by God's grace alone, through Jesus alone, by means of faith alone. Next week and the week after, we'll hear about grace alone and Christ alone, but today we're going to talk about faith alone. But what exactly is faith? The word faith occurs four times in our reading from Galatians 3 today. And although in English, the word believe and the word faith sound very different, in the Greek that the New Testament was originally written from and is translated into English from, the word believe and the word faith share the same root. The only difference is one's a verb and one's a noun. And throughout Christian history, Christians have agreed that there are three essential elements that make up authentic faith. The first element that makes up authentic faith is knowledge. Knowledge. With apologies to Eric Clapton and the classic blues band Blind Faith, faith is not blind. Faith must have content. Faith is not formless or void. Authentic faith begins with knowledge. And authentic Christian faith, in particular, is centered around knowledge about Jesus. The content of Christian faith is Jesus, who he is and what he did his identity as Messiah and Son of God, and what he did, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his pouring out of the gift of the Spirit to create the church, and his promise to someday come again. So although faith isn't blind, faith must have knowledge. Knowledge alone is not enough to constitute faith. A second element of authentic faith is assent. Assent or agreement. Assent means being persuaded of the truthfulness of this knowledge about Jesus. I may not understand everything about Jesus, but I begin to move into assent when I begin to believe and become persuaded of the truth of what I do know about Jesus. Now, I may be only 51% persuaded it's true, 49% persuaded it's not true, but that couple percentage points is when I begin to move into assent. This is why at Lake Avenue Church, we ask people to verbally confess what they believe about Jesus when they're baptized. Because at baptism, a person declares their faith 
what they believe on about Jesus, and then we receive them, we treat them as a believer, as someone who has faith. And so in baptism, a person will say, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sins and that he rose again from the dead. In the ancient church, in many places, they use the Apostles' Creed as the basic framework for what it means to treat someone as a believer. But it doesn't stop with our baptism. Part of worshiping together is continuing to assent or affirm or confess our faith, even as we've done today by saying the Apostles' Creed together, and we've done through music and song. But knowledge and assent alone don't constitute authentic faith. The third essential element of authentic faith is trust. Not only do we have knowledge about who Jesus is, and not only do we assent to the truth of that knowledge, but we also trust the living, risen, resurrected Jesus with our lives. If knowledge and assent happen in the mind and the heart, trust happens with the will. And this is why the Christian faith is not a one-time thing. It's an everyday, lifelong thing. This is why the most common way Jesus talked about having faith was following him as a disciple. That's what it means to have faith, to trust him with our lives. That Christian faith means learning to trust Jesus every day with our relationships and our resources and our worries and our woes, with our past and our future, with all that we have. Trust. And these three elements, knowledge, assent, and trust, together comprise authentic Christian faith. And when the Reformers talked about being made right with God on the basis of faith alone, this is the kind of faith they were talking about. Okay, so we've defined a couple terms. Let's look more closely at Galatians 3 together. Uh, I've already mentioned how significant Paul's letter to the Galatians was in the Reformation. In fact, Luther's commentary on Galatians is one of his most famous writings. Uh, In fact, 200 years after Luther wrote his commentary on Galatians, another person would be here at read 200 years later named John Wesley, and that's how John Wesley became a Christian. At a Bible study, hearing the commentary on Galatians written by Luther read. And so Paul writes in Galatians, the Christians living in the ancient city of Galatia, because they were being tempted to think that they were being made right with God on the basis of their faith in Jesus plus works. Some people had slipped in to the Galatian church and they were telling these brand new Christians in the city of Galatia that Paul was wrong in thinking that we're made right with God on the basis of faith alone. They said to be part, to be right with God, you need to have faith in Jesus plus you need to join the Jewish people. And since the Galatian Christians weren't Jewish, they were being told that they had to embrace an ethnic Jewish identity to be part of the people of God, to be part of Israel, and only then would they be right with God. And so in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he passionately defends his belief that we are made right with God on the basis of faith and faith alone. And to prove his point in our reading today from Galatians 3, he appeals to the story of Abraham. 
Now, if you're not familiar with Abraham, Abraham was the ancient forefather of the Jewish people. We encounter him in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And uh, and I'll talk in some more depth about Abraham's story in a minute. But for Paul, Abraham's story was the ultimate example of someone who was made right with God on the basis of faith alone. But back in Paul's day, not everyone looked at Abraham and his story the same way. In fact, back then, Abraham's story was viewed primarily as a story about obedient works, not a story about faith. And I was trying to, to, to think about how to, to, to describe this, and, and I started thinking about how when I grew up in uh, going to Los Angeles Unified School District through elementary school and middle school, I grew up associating the story of George Washington, the first president of the United States, with the virtue of honesty. Because I was told a story, probably in kindergarten or first grade, I was told this story that when that George Washington was given a new hatchet by his father, maybe you've heard the story, and he used the hatchet to go into his father's cherry orchard and he chopped down a cherry tree and his father asked him, what happened to the cherry tree? And George Washington supposedly said, I cannot tell a lie, I cut down the tree, to which his father replied that his son's honesty was worth more than 10,000 cherry trees. And ever since then, we associate Washington and his story with the virtue of honesty. In fact, that story is told again and again, at least to people of my generation, to emphasize honesty. The story of Washington and the cherry tree has become a morality story to teach honesty. Well, in ancient Judaism... Abraham's story was a morality story about obedient works. And what Paul does here in Galatians 3, and he also does it in Romans chapter 4, is he tells the story of Abraham in a completely different way. I mean, imagine me telling the story of George Washington and the cherry tree, and I get to the end and say, and the moral of the story is to always sharpen your hatchet so you can cut down cherry trees. You say, that's not how that story goes. That's not the moral of the story. Well, for Paul to tell the Abraham story as a story of faith, it was so radically new that they'd say, that's not how the story goes. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul quotes the first book of the Bible. He quotes Genesis 15, which says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith, and God treated that faith as righteousness in his sight. How did Abraham get to the point where God saw his faith and treated that faith as righteousness? Well, let's go back in the story. At first, his name wasn't even Abraham. It was Abram. And we first meet Abram in the 11th chapter of the first book of the Bible in Genesis. By chapter 12 of Genesis, God appears to Abram 
and invites Abram to leave behind his pagan way of life in ancient Mesopotamia and to enter into a relationship with the true and living God, the creator of all that exists. And God promises to bless Abram, to protect Abram, to bring Abram and his descendants into a new homeland. And most importantly in Genesis 12, God promises that through Abram and through Abram's descendants, God will bring God's blessings to every other family in the world. God chooses one person to bless all people, one family to bless all families, one people to bless all people, one nation to bless all nations. And that is the heart of God's promise to Abram in Genesis 12. And so 75 years and childless, Abram, his wife Sarai, and their nephew Lot leave their homeland in ancient Mesopotamia, the city of Ur, to begin this adventure of faith with God. But after 10 years of living by faith, Abram still has no children and no homeland. And 10 years may not seem that long to us, turning pages in the Bible from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15, but when you're living a decade in real time, 10 years feels like an eternity. And so by the time we get to chapter 15 of Genesis, Abram is wavering in his faith. And so God reappears to him and reaffirms the promise he made a decade earlier. And it's in Genesis 15 that we find the verse that Paul quotes in Galatians. Abram believed in God and God credited that faith to him as righteousness. But you know, if you keep reading the story in Genesis... Nearly 15 years go by from that point, nearly 25 years from God's original promise to Abram, and Abram's still childless and still has no homeland. And so in Genesis 17, God appears to Abram a third time to reaffirm the promise he had given to him nearly 25 years earlier. And it's during this third appearance to Abram in, in Genesis chapter 17 that God changes Abram's name to Abraham and changes his wife's name to Sarah. And in that chapter, God gives Abraham the right of circumcision for him and all of he and Sarah's future sons, of which they have zero at this point. And circumcision would be the visible sign of God's promise to Abraham. Circumcision would be the right of membership for all the men who comprise Abraham's family. And finally, a year after that, in Genesis 21, Abraham and Sarah would finally give birth to Isaac, their son. And from Isaac would come all of the people of Israel, all the Jewish people would trace through Isaac. Before Paul, the usual way of telling this story was that it's a story of obedience. Look at what Abraham did. When God called him to leave his homeland, he obeyed. When God gave Abraham the right of circumcision, he was circumcised. Look what he did. And since the people of Israel believed themselves to be the daughters and the sons of Abraham, to follow Abraham meant to live obediently to what God commands, to do works. But Paul tells the story very differently. Abraham is a story of faith. Abraham has faith 
And that's what God counts as righteousness. It wasn't Abraham's obedience, it was his faith. I love this quote from South Asia theologian Finney Philip. Dr. Philip writes this in his commentary. He says, Paul's point is that the story of Abraham is not fundamentally about circumcision and obeying the law. It is about trusting God's promise. The Galatians have done that. And so they are now children of Abraham because they share the same essential characteristic. This means that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ is also a child of Abraham and thus the brother or sister of all his other children. The principle was the same back then as it is today. We find our way back to God on the basis of faith. And God's original promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 is now fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. And through Jesus, God is now offering the good news to every family and every nation and every people group and every language group. Once again, God chose one in order to bless all. In fact, later in chapter 3, we didn't read this verse, but in verse 16, Paul will say these words, the promises spoken to Abraham were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Scripture does not say seeds, plural, meaning many people, but to his seed, singular, meaning one person who is Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. And now entering into Abraham's family, comes through faith. And those who rely on faith are part of Abraham's family. Now let me suggest two principles from this passage that we can take away from us very quickly. The first principle is this. God accepts us wholly and exclusively on the basis of our faith in Christ. God accepts us wholly and exclusively. We are justified. We are made right with God on the basis of faith alone. And friends, that is humbling because it means coming to terms with the fact that we contribute nothing to coming back to God. I like the way one of the English reformers, Hugh Latimer, puts it. Latimer says, faith is the empty hand wherewith we receive Christ's benefits. Faith is the empty hand. means we contribute nothing to the process but the empty hand that receives the gift. Our morals, our influence, our values, our heritage, our church membership, these things contribute nothing. Faith is the empty hand. And in fact, if we rely upon these things instead of coming to God with the empty hand of faith, they actually stand as an obstacle like a person drowning in the ocean. As long as a drowning person is trying to save themselves, you notice the lifeguard keeps their distance. It's only when a drowning person stops trying to save themselves that they're ready for the lifeguard to come and to save them, to rescue them. It is humbling to let go of the things that might make me look better than other people and to come to God with nothing but the empty hand of faith. And perhaps this is why the Christian message often appeals more to people who have less influence and less wealth. And it appeals less to the rich and the powerful who find it difficult to let go 
and come with the empty hand of faith. And perhaps this is why we are always tempted like the Galatians were to come to God and to present ourselves to God on the basis of our faith plus our efforts, our faith plus our influence, our heritage, our status, whatever it might be. God only receives those who come with the empty hand of faith. This first principle is humbling, but it's also comforting. As Luther constantly pointed out, faith alone means that our standing before God is in no way dependent upon us. If being right with God was in any way dependent on our performance, it would never last. If we contributed anything to our standing before God, we would be on shaky ground. God accepts us wholly and exclusively on the basis of our faith. But here's the second principle. Once accepted by God, our faith will grow into a lifestyle of love. Our faith will grow into a lifestyle of love. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. We are justified by faith alone, but faith will never remain alone. Martin Luther put it this way, faith receives, love gives. Faith remains the doer, love remains the deed. Faith is the beginning and love is the ending. Authentic Christian faith will express itself in love for God. Once we're made right with God, we learn to love God through our obedience and our worship and our prayer and our service. We love God by allowing God's word and God's spirit and God's people, his church, to transform us and to shape us so that we, like a diseased tree that begins to be, get healthy, begins to produce fruit that's life-giving and healthy. We love God by participating in our own spiritual transformation, learning the rhythms and the ways of grace. An authentic Christian faith will always express itself in love for people, all kinds of people. At first, we tend to love the people that are easy for us to love, our friends, people who look like us, people who think the same way that we think and look at life the, the same way we look at life. But the love that comes from faith never stops there. Faith grows into a love for people who don't look like us, people who think very differently than we do, people who, who do life very differently than we do. And in fact, if the people that we love today are exactly the same people we loved when we first came to faith, our faith is not growing If the people we love today all look just like us and think just like us, our faith is not growing. And when I think about that, it reminds us that we still have a lot to learn about sola fide, about faith alone. Like Abraham, we come back to God by faith alone. This faith involves knowledge, assent, and trust in Jesus. And when we come to God on the basis of this faith alone, we become part of the sons and daughters of Abraham, the man of faith. But we're never right with God once we come by faith alone because true faith 
never remains alone. True faith always will grow into a lifestyle of love for God and love for people. And maybe you're here today and you realize that you are on this journey back to God. Maybe your faith is beginning to grow as you learn more about Jesus or you're beginning to realize, wow, I really believe some of this stuff. Or or maybe you're convinced and now is the point of trust as an act of the will to receive it. Wherever you are on that journey, can I encourage you, do not leave this place today until you have taken the next step in your journey back to God, whatever it might be. We'll have people up here on the right after the service that would be glad to pray with you and walk with you through that process. But for many of us who've come to God with the empty hand of faith, our challenge is to continue to let that faith grow into love. To resist the delusion that grows over time that somehow we contributed something to the process. To continue to be humbled by the gift of grace and for the empty hand of faith to grow to become full of love that we can share and express towards God and towards others. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words from your scriptures and thank you for the reformers. Lord, they weren't perfect, but they rediscovered something that had been forgotten. Father, help Lake Avenue Church be a place where people discover faith, where week after week after week, people are finding their ways back to God. And Lord, help Lake Avenue Church be a place where we grow in love, that abounds in love. Lord, make it so in Christ's name. Amen.